Our Bible readings this morning um, are from Acts chapter 8 and Luke chapter 3. So first Acts chapter 8, which is on page 123 in the New Testament part of the Bible. Acts 8, verses 14 to 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet the Spirit had not come upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Second reading is on page 57 and 58, Luke chapter 3 verses 15 to 17, and then 21 to 22. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then to verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Let me lead us in a prayer before I start uh, speaking. Lord, as we gather in this place, we want nothing. Nothing more than an encounter with you. So may it be. Amen. Isn't New Year's Eve a strange time? I mean, many people, as I'm sure many of you have done, will celebrate with fireworks and parties, or maybe just staying up late with Rick Astley, uh, or something like that. But it's almost like we're midwives attending the delivery of something special. When I was a child, I would get very excited about New Year. Um, It felt like a sort of fresh beginning, a new number, as... 1970 turned into 1971. I was was pretty excited. But as I've got older, I've realized that, unfortunately, the reality is that it, it isn't so much a new, fresh beginning. It's simply a return to the beginning of the yearly cycle, a bit like uh, when you're playing Monopoly, uh, uh, returning to go. The board of life sits there, looking much the same as it did a few weeks earlier. The first chapters of Luke's Gospel uh, tell 
the story of the most significant new beginning imaginable. And Luke wanted to get the account right, uh, as accurate as possible. And so in spite of the fact that many others had attempted to give their version in writing of what had happened, he decided to write his own. He was said to be a doctor, so he was an intelligent man, he was well-connected. And uh, that being the case, he was in a good place to piece together the most significant parts of this amazing story. And the story he tells, of course, is about one central character, the towering figure of Jesus Christ, the one who divides time into B.C. and A.D., the one who's coming by his coming, by his death and his resurrection, opens up a whole new era for humanity and ushers in the kingdom of God, the place where Jesus himself is revealed as the King of Kings, the one who fulfills all the promises and prophecies set out in the Old Testament prophets, uh, for example, in Isaiah. And through the first two chapters, Luke tells us the detailed story of the amazing events surrounding Jesus' birth. And over Christmas, we've recalled these things. Angels coming and foretelling the births, first of all, of John the Baptist and then of Jesus himself. An angel telling Mary what was in store for her. Then the shepherds and angels visiting the newborn baby. It's all there in chapter 1 and 2. And it's interesting that if you read through those stories, it's easy to overlook one other character who keeps cropping up. It's almost like cameo appearances in a drama or a film, but worth noting because later in the story that person becomes very significant. So who am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. If you thought the Holy Spirit really only got a look in in Pentecost in Acts, you'll be surprised to learn that in the first couple of chapters of Luke, he's mentioned nine times, which is almost half the total that he's mentioned in the entire uh, gospel. I wanted to quickly run through uh, the appearances of the Holy Spirit in the first couple of chapters. So in 115, you've got Zechariah was told that his son would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. 135, you've got Mary told that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. 141, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed a prophecy to Mary. 167, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke a prophecy. And then finally, in 225, it was said of Simeon, the old man at the temple, that the Holy Spirit rested on him and revealed things to him. Sometimes when the Holy Spirit is mentioned in these first two chapters, it almost seems incidental. It's like a really elaborate story being told where occasionally there's a bit of detail like um, there was a slight breeze that day. Perhaps the writer didn't want to take anything away, any attention away from the main character, Jesus. And John the Baptist was a prophet and it had been revealed to him that the coming of Jesus marked the beginning the start of some long-awaited new beginning for the people of Israel. The promise written in Isaiah 40 was happening, and he was one of the main characters in that prophecy. 
He was the one crying out in the wilderness. In chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, it says, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The great straightening and leveling out was about to begin. In every dimension, things were going to be straightened. No more meandering paths. No more huge ups and downs. The process was beginning. And people came out into the wilderness to find John. But what was John the Baptist offering them? In verse 3, it tells us that for him, it was all about repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was preparing the people for Jesus, getting the willing to, as one commentator has put it, embrace behaviors rooted in a radical realignment with God's purpose. Was that the entirety of the good news as far as John was concerned? Behavioral change, turning away from the actions that displeased God and trying harder to do the things that pleased God and that he was a, he, God approved of. Well, the passage that we're looking at today in Luke chapter 3 is an account of the day when Jesus turned up. Jesus turned up in the wilderness. And on that particular occasion, John had more to say. We find it recorded in verses 16 and 17. He talks about some, someone else coming along with power, more power, and a dramatically different kind of baptism. Not just a baptism with water, but one involving the Holy Spirit and fire. Our, the other reading we had this morning from Gillian was um, from Acts chapter 8, 14 to 17. And it tells the story of a community in Samaria where all the members had, according to verse 16, only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's a rather strange story. But they had not received all that was to be given. The thing that was missing, the something more, involved the Holy Spirit. So on the day when Jesus turned up in the wilderness to visit John, something else very significant happened. It happened, uh, it's recorded in verses 21, 22. Jesus himself is baptized. And this is a different type of thing from any of the other baptisms that John conducted. Jesus had already encountered the Holy Spirit at the time of his conception. Remember in chapter 1, verse 35, it says, the Holy Spirit says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be holy. And for the holy, sinless Jesus, there was no need for repentance and forgiveness of sins. He was going through the same process as the ordinary people to identify with them. To emphasize publicly that he was one with them. But he was clearly not one of them. Verse 22 spells it out. It almost reads like the coronation of a king. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. 
I picture it, the dove landing on Jesus' head like a crown. Then there was the declaration when a voice from heaven declared, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. So to summarize, clearly the Holy Spirit is an important presence for all the characters mentioned in the story so far in Luke, even Jesus himself. And it's a fascinating story of really important new beginnings up to this point. But I want to spend a little time considering verse 17. What are we to make of this? His winnowing fork in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is presented as an activity to expect in the future for the people in the wilderness. For those that John had baptized who stood around repentant and wanting to align with God and his plans, this represented something to expect. But exactly what it meant must have been a mystery to them. It sounds rather frightening. Was it to be a one-off event? Or was it to be the way God would involve himself with his people in the future? I don't know if any of you have ever done any threshing. Blank looks. Uh, This is not a sort of agricultural area around here. Uh, For those uh, unfamiliar with the process of threshing, I've done a bit of reading about it, so I think I've got a bit of a feel for what was involved in biblical times. It took place in a designated area, a threshing floor, which was a kind of primitive processing plant for the harvest. And the aim was to take the raw materials, some sheaves of wheat, for example, from the field, and end up with something you could use to make food or some seeds for planting. I found a very helpful beginner's guide to threshing in Isaiah, Isaiah 28:27. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Grain is crushed for bread, but one does not thresh it forever. One drives the cartwheel and horses over it, but does not pulverize it. There you are now. So although there's a certain amount of necessary agricultural violence involved, it is a measured activity tailored to the harvest in question. So after the harvest has been appropriately threshed, the next stage in uh, the process is winnowing. You'll need a fork and a spade for this because it involves tossing the material up in the air repeatedly. I mean, of course, this of itself doesn't achieve very much without the other essential ingredient. And the other essential part is the wind. This is the part that the winnower has very little direct control over, apart from selecting a day when it's not howling a gale and you're in danger of everything ending up in next door's garden. But the right breeze will blow away the husks, the chaff, the dirt, and all the stuff that is of no use. 
leaving you with the seeds, the really valuable element in the harvest. Now the novice threshing floor operative might sit down at this stage and have a little rest. He might imagine the job was done, but he'd forgotten one very important final task, which is to dispose of the chaff and dirt, all the stuff that's blown out of the harvest. He needs to sweep this up, otherwise the direction of the wind might change and it will blow back in and contaminate the grain. There were no green bins in those days, and the best thing to do with it was burn it. And maybe in those days you would have a fire continually burning in your house. So on it goes. Best place for it. John says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I've been reflecting on this story quite a bit over the last week and and I think it gives us a very useful metaphor to help us understand what the baptism from Jesus involved and involves. Something beyond what John was offering. John had done his part. Perhaps he was the thresher unsettling the status quo, shaking the people up a bit, getting people to repent. And maybe for some of you in the last few years, it's been an unsettling time. Maybe you've had really disturbing things happening to you. Perhaps your life, for you, things are still up in the air. And maybe for you, repentance and forgiveness of sins is something you're familiar with and value. But still, you seek more. There's something missing. You have a hunger for more. And the more is offered by Jesus, something beyond the beginning, something ongoing. He wants to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Which sounds frighteningly dramatic. And it can be, if you look at Acts chapter 2, 2 to 3, for example, Luke, the same author, uses the same imagery to describe what happened on the day of Pentecost. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them. But remember, ours is a God who sends the right wind at the right time. In fact, it's not just wind, it's not just some impersonal force but rather it's a person, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And isn't this what we need in our world, our church, our parish, our own lives, the breath of God? Just one final thought. A a metaphor can help, but it never captures the entirety of the truth around an issue. And I think this metaphor breaks down in one particularly important uh, respect. The Holy Spirit comes to us as wind, not just to blow away the chaff, the rubbish, the dirt, the things that contaminate and are of no value, 
but to replace, to bring in something of God himself, something refreshing, life-giving, inspiring, creating. As I finish now, I, I, I believe and hope that we'll be able to play you a song, the words of which will be uh, familiar to you, uh, but the tune will be new. And I think it might help if you consider these words as a prayer, a prayer for you, a prayer for the church, as we start this new year together. Thank you for your heroic efforts there, Ken, to grapple with the, <laughs> the IT. Instead, let me lead you in a, in a reflection using the words of this song. So if you wanted to just be quiet as I read, and uh, regard this as, as perhaps your prayer for yourself and for the church in this coming year. Let's pray. O breath of life, come sweeping through us. Revive your church with life and power. O breath of life, come cleanse, renew us, and fit your church to meet this hour. O breath of love, come breathe within us, renewing thought and will and heart. Come, love of Christ, afresh to win. Revive your church in every part. O wind of God, come bend us, break us, till humbly we confess our need then in your tenderness remake us, revive, restore, for this we plead. Revive us, Lord, is zeal abating, while harvest fields are vast and ripe. Revive us, Lord, the world is waiting. Equip your church to spread the light.